1984, Canadian singer-songwriter Bruce Cockburn released the song, Lovers in a Dangerous Time. Cockburn saw teenagers expressing romantic love in a schoolyard full of life and hope for the future, a future that seemed only filled with foreboding and doom for him. 1984 was a tense year. The Cold War had reached a, a new low just a year prior. The HIV-AIDS pandemic was spreading. Cockburn's lyrics contrast hope and foreboding, expressing the overwhelming beauty for the one who loves, combined with the sense of being on the brink. Here are the opening lyrics. Don't the hours grow shorter as the days go by? You never get to stop and open your eyes. One day you're waiting for the sky to fall, the next you're dazzled by the beauty of it all when your lover's in a dangerous time. By the way, I'm going to post links to this song when the sermon goes up. Along with Cockburn's recording, Canadian band Bare Naked Ladies released a cover in 1991, and both versions are awesome. So take a listen. This is a dangerous time for us, too. It appears we may be in this for the long haul. Social distancing, cancellation of school, in per cancellation of in-person worship services, and other activities. The federal government passed one $8 billion relief package and appears to poise to pass a $1 trillion one any day now. Meanwhile, even famous people and lawmakers are getting sick. We seem to be at the left end of the bell curve right now. With what the CDC has been saying, it is unlikely that we individually will remain unaffected. And yet, in this dangerous time, Jesus calls on us to be people who love God and love our neighbor, first and foremost above anything else. It may be comforting, or maybe not, but it may be comforting to hear that the time of Jesus' earthly ministry was far more dangerous than our own. Remember last week's sermon. A pandemic of panic had spread throughout the religious leaders. With Rome's boot firmly on Judea's neck, the last thing the religious leaders wanted was some upstart like Jesus to bring destruction down upon everyone. Plus, they had their own interests to think about. Jesus spoke and acted against the institution of the temple multiple times. The last week he's in Jerusalem and Mark is filled with all of these all of these preachings and all of these signs and all these actions that are against the institution the religious institution of the temple. Jesus threatened their meal ticket. In addition to that, these events took place, just to heighten the tension, these events took place during Passover week. And Passover, you'll remember, is a festival celebrating God's liberation of Israel from another empire, that of Egypt. Thousands of pilgrims, you can just imagine it, thousands of pilgrims are streaming into the city for Passover. According to Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan's book, The Last Week, Rome has prepared for any potential unrest by scheduling a show of force on the first day of the week. 
a military parade featuring Kenturians, warhorses, and most notably, Pilate himself. Borg and Crossan further suggest that Jesus' procession and Pilate's procession were held at opposite ends of the city. The contrast couldn't be more stark. The military might of Rome, force exemplified. War horses, shields, gleaming spears, con contrasted with the gentle Messiah, the one who rides on a donkey without bow, sword, shield, spear, military, any outward show of force at all. Truly is a time pregnant with tension, fear, and hatred, but also hope. It was definitely a dangerous time. And in that dangerous time with the world on the precipice, one of Jesus' enemies asks him a real question. Not a trick question like he's had up to this point, like the one about taxes that we heard about last week, or the one about the resurrection that immediately precedes this one that the Sadducees posed. This question, which commandment is the first of all, is really the question, what's truly important? What's truly important? As finite human beings whose span is like the flower of the field, thank you, Isaiah 40, for that image, what is really important about our paltry human lives? Jesus responds by quoting the Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Very, perhaps a proto-creed, a nice summation of the faith of Israel. Shema is a Hebrew word that means listen. Here's the quote. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The whole end of the faith of Israel is to love God. That's what all 613 commandments in the Torah are meant to do. They're meant to show Israel as a nation that does things differently, a nation that loves God, set apart for loving God, and with that, loving the neighbor. Speaking of loving the neighbor, then Jesus quotes an odd section of scripture, at least for us. It's, it's an odd section of scripture for 21st century American Christians, but it's not an odd section of scripture for him. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is smack in the middle of the Holiness Code, which is a detailed set of laws about how Israel is to conduct itself so that it may be holy as God is holy. One of these commands is that the people of Israel are to love their neighbors as themselves. Love God, love the neighbor. That's at the heart of Jesus' teaching. That's what's really important. That's at the heart of God's purpose for human life. God can only command us to love because God is love. God loves us and our broken, tired, exhausted, anxious world beyond expression. God is not an inaccessible, unmoved mover like 
Aristotle and others like him taught, but God is a mover who likewise moves. God moved over the waters of chaos in Genesis 1, decreeing light, order, and life. God heard the cries of his suffering people Israel and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God heard the cries of his people and the prophets when their world ended in the 6th century destruction of Jerusalem. God saw a humanity crushed by sin's power in captivity to death and descended to us to himself in the person of Jesus. The command that called light out of darkness, the very word that brought creation into existence, took on human form. He took on human form to bring us out of our own captivity to sin and death, to bring us into his own royal family, to ensure that we have a place with him now and in the age to come. That's love. That is love. God loves us corporately as the church, and God loves you. Yes, you, individually, personally. Even in this dangerous, uncertain time, God in Christ assures us of his love for us. And here's where I should just end the sermon with a prayer and an amen, and we move on. And isn't that great? But there's another wrench that gets thrown into this. There's another story in our reading today. There's a story of the widow who gives her last two coins to that same broken and oppressive temple system. How is God showing love for her? After all, Jesus just warned about religious leaders who devour widows' houses. I want Jesus to rush up to her, grab her by both of her shoulders, and say, Save your money! Don't give it to these jerks! But he doesn't. He just notices her and her gift. What's going on? Now, I want Jesus to be more hands-on like he was with the money changers a, a few days prior, at least in the telling of this. But something else is going on here, something greater than meets the eye. The widow's coins are the ultimate judgment against the temple, not just the temple, against any religious, or social institution that refuses to love God and love the neighbor. It's a judgment on institutions. God notices her and uses her gift to pronounce judgment. She is loved by God, indeed. God does not rob her of her agency in this situation. There's a brief story, a colleague of mine once uh, knew about a woman in the congregation who was on a very limited means, but she was going to keep giving. She kept giving, even though this pastor knew that she had such limited means to give. He said, Doris, just for lack of another name, that's the name I, that popped into my mind right now, Doris, you don't have to give this money to the church. I know that, that, that you're struggling as it is. And she said, how dare you? How dare you tell me what to do with my money? I choose to give it to the church. He was trying to take away her agency to do that. God does not take away this woman's agency. She is a beloved child of God. And because God notices the widow, 
we're called to notice her too. That goes along with loving God, loving our neighbor, to love all of those we might overlook, to love those that are the most vulnerable. We're given this purpose, loving God and loving the neighbor for life is our good news. This is an age that is often driftless. People don't know what the purpose is for their lives. But even now, as a dispersed church, God gives us this purpose. Jesus gives us this purpose. Love God, love the neighbor. And God can do that because God loves us with a love that will not let us go, even in our most difficult times. God gives us purpose. God gives us meaning to love as God loves, especially in a dangerous time like this. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you called us back to the purpose of our existence when you named the greatest commandments. In this age when we are a dispersed, separated church, help us recommit to love you and love our neighbors and remind us of your infinite love for us. Amen.